Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include Water in the Desert, My Interview with Arrive Homes, Ty Christensen on the intersection of Black History Month and the mortgage industry, and recent demand at Treasury auctions. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simple Nexus an Encino company and award-winning developer of mobile-first technology for the modern mortgage lender. Nexus origination allows lenders and borrowers to complete the mortgage process from anywhere. With a flexible digital loan application, fast pre-qual and pre-approval capabilities, and a simplified mobile disclosure process, hundreds of lenders rely on Simple Nexus to deliver world-class home lending services. To learn more about Nexus origination, visit simplenexus.com. Interesting news from the Phoenix area in the desert. How would you appraise a perfectly fine home that had no water? Rio Verde, aptly named Green River, a neighborhood outside of Scottsdale, Arizona with some 2,000 homes, recently learned that there is not a stable water supply. The 1980s Groundwater Management Act required that in order for a development six lots or larger to proceed in Arizona, it had to secure a 100-year supply of water. The Rio Verde foothills developers kept splitting parcels into four to five lots, putting them under the six-lot minimum that applied to the law and avoiding that requirement. About 30% of the residents now face a dramatic change in price, as the city has cut them off from water since the Colorado River level has dropped. Yikes. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back to the show Ty Christensen, co-founder and chief diversity and public relations officer for Arrive Home, a national down payment assistance social enterprise for multiple government entities. She has over 20 years experience in the mortgage industry, specializing in working with underserved communities, and is passionate about assisting creditworthy borrowers in disadvantaged communities become homeowners and build intergenerational wealth through homeownership. February is Black History Month and and I wanted to open this interview by asking you what Black History Month means to you and maybe how your perception of it has evolved over the years. Well, I think Black History Month for me is an opportunity to showcase to my children um, a lot of unknown facts about the Black community. A few years ago, I started uh, Googling and researching little known facts about the Black community and sharing them with my kids. And actually, last year, I did a whole series where every day for work for 28 days, I would send a little known fact about a Black person uh, to our employees. And that actually turned out to be really great. People were super excited to read them. And there was a lot of knowledge that was shared. I love it because it highlights the accomplishments of Black individuals that don't really get the recognition they deserve oftentimes in traditional history books. But I know for a lot of people, it's kind of a double-edged sword. They don't like the fact that Black History Month is where Black history is highlighted. A lot of the Black community feels like Black history should be more inclusive in history textbooks, et cetera. I do agree with that as well. But until we get to a point where history, American history is equitable for all demographics, I celebrate Black History Month each year, and I think it's great. And I don't want to reduce the contributions of, of millions of blacks in this country to to little factual tidbits here. But any of those 
stats that you shared with your children or, or stories that you shared with your children that you think are notable that you'd like to to point out here today? I think a lot of it is just highlighting people that they can see in themselves. I remember when I was telling my kids about Flojo, at the time, my youngest daughter was running track and she could see herself reflected in her and her accomplishments. And she was surprised that she had achieved so much in her very short life. You have to remember, she died very young. Um, so just just things like that, just getting outside of the Martin Luther King and the Malcolm X's, talking about people like Booker T. Washington, talking about the people that helped Harriet Tubman to create the Underground Railroad, what that really was, what the Black experience was really like when they had to sit at Black-only countertops, drink out of Black-only water fountains. Talking to my parents and my grandparents when I was younger was really influential for me as well. I mean, the fact that my parents both grew up in the South. Uh, marched in civil rights marches, uh, you know, like I said, drank from black only water fountains, had to sit in certain sections of movie theaters. Um, they could only shop on certain days and times in certain department stores. So just making sure that my children are aware of these things. And as we move forward as a society to become truly a more equitable and inclusive America, I want them to remember the sacrifices and the emotional trauma that was caused by to their grandparents and to their great grandparents and keep that with them and remember that history can can revert back if we don't remember, you know, the lessons that we've learned in the past. So and also a uh, quick plug here, I named my daughter Maya for Maya Angelou, who's my uh, very favorite poet. My mother made me uh, memorize Phenomenal Woman in the third grade. And if your listeners have not heard of the Phenomenal Woman poem, it is probably the best uh, poem written by a Black woman. Thank you very much for that recommendation. I'll check it out after this interview. Uh, <laughs> you you live out in Utah, which is a predominantly white state. Where do you feel like awareness of Black History Month or celebration of it uh, can continue to to get better and better, especially in places where there might not be a lot of Black representation. Tell you a quick story. Uh, I moved to Utah in 1999 to go to Brigham Young University, which is also a predominantly white, uh, predominantly Mormon university. And obviously, uh, there are not a lot of Black people uh, that were here in the 90s. Uh, there, there have been quite a bit, few more who've moved here since then, but I believe we are almost at 2% Black population in, in the state of Utah. Um, and when I first moved here, I had children who would point at me in the grocery store and say, Mom, there's a Black person there. Not in a nefarious or a malicious way, just an awareness that this was their first time seeing a Black person live and in living color outside of their TV screens. A couple of times it happened to me, I was pretty shocked. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. Uh, you know, my great grandparents grew up in Philadelphia. I'm, I'm going to the South all the time to visit my cousins. And, and we traveled quite a bit um, when we were younger. And so I've always had a very robust kind of multicultural upbringing. And so to come to a place where I was literally the only person of color, not even just a Black person, person of color that I would see for months at a time. Um, it was it was really, really striking. Uh, when I first moved here, uh, the state of Utah didn't even recognize Martin Luther King Day as a holiday. Uh, so it has come a really long way in the over 20 years that I've lived here. And I have started to see more of a significance placed on Black History Month. My children, uh, when they first started attending school, my older girls, it really was not that big of a deal here. They would kind of mention your traditional, you know, Martin Luther King um, Malcolm X, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't 
like it should be. They weren't really diving deep into um, Black History Month. And now they really are. I mean, my my daughter, who is in fifth grade now, my youngest daughter, she comes home all the time and talks about things that her teacher has told her. And her teacher has told her things outside of Black History Month about Black Americans that have made an impression on the country, which I find to be um, even more uh, inclusive, to be honest with you, because I think that we should be celebrating Black history all year, not just during Black History Month, but to your earlier question, it really has improved quite a bit um, the way that Black History Month is celebrated here. I'm seeing restaurants now that are featuring certain menu items for Black History Month desserts, sweet potato pie. I've seen it at a few of my favorite restaurants that we frequent, and they're offering it um, during Black History Month to celebrate Black culture. And I think that that's great. Do you think that there are more conducive ways to to spread this awareness to the general population. I mean, you and I were talking before we came on LeBron James passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar earlier this week for the NBA's all-time individual scoring title. And it was a, a true celebration of black excellence. But when people hear, hey, celebrate black excellence, or I say non, non-people of color hear that, mm-hmm. sometimes it rubs them the wrong way unnecessarily. I'm wondering, I'm wondering kind of why you think that is or, or how how you know, awareness continues to help, you know, mitigate those sorts of attitudes and negative attitudes and feelings. I mean, let's just be honest and raw here. It kind of is a double-edged sword. You know, when I say I'm I'm celebrating Black excellence, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a Black person. I have pride in the Black community. If you take a white 45-year-old male and if he says, I have white excellence, I have pride in the white community, I am proud to be a white person, those two messages are received very differently, right? And and I feel like that is a lot due to historical factors where you are coming from an oppressed people that have been repressed, depressed, and oppressed uh, for generations upon generations. And we have not had the opportunity to have our successes highlighted and celebrated over the course of the duration of the, of the, the building um, and bringing up of this country. If you have to remember, if you look at America, we're the teenagers of the world, right? We are the young, impressionable, um, loud uh, country. And so we have a lot of growth and learning to do. And so since we're such a young country, white excellence has been celebrated from inception, from our founding fathers and forwards where just now we're in this moment where people are really taking a minute to highlight uh, the the offerings of communities of color. And so it has emboldened ethnic groups to be proud of our lineage, proud of our heritage, and not saying that the white community should not share in their own pride, right? Their own joy and their own accomplishments. It does come off sounding a little different when you are not an oppressed person um, and you have pride, it sounds a little bit, you know, bold and brash when you're out there talking about it. But when you're from an oppressed community, it sounds, it's a received, the message is received a little bit better. Now, while I believe that all Americans should be celebrated uh, for, for all of their accomplishments until we are in a country that feels far more racially inclusive than we feel right now, um, these, these different communities are likely still going to be triggered uh, by some certain phrases and terminology. You know, the whole Black Lives Matter thing, I mean, let's just talk about it. It started out as something that was supposed to bring the Black community together in a time of grievance. 
Um, and, and it got commercialized and, and weaponized in a way that it was never meant to. And I don't, and I'm not that all lives don't matter because clearly they do, but the entire point of Black Lives Matter was our Black brothers were dying at a disproportional rate than any other racial demographic and their lives mattered. Uh, that's where the whole Black Lives Matter uh, movement came from and it and it was weaponized and I'm not going to get into the reasons why. It was people on all sides that were weaponizing it for commercial power, um, but it turned into something it was never meant to be. It turned into words that were aggressive and angry and, and people were made to feel like they had to pick a side when really it was just supposed to be this moment of realization that, hey, there is a part of our American community, specifically Black men, that are dying at the hands of law enforcement and disproportional rates. And this needs to be looked into and addressed. And unfortunately, that, that language has been weaponized. And so what I would love to do is to live in a country where all lives truly do matter and we're sensitive to the disparities between each individual racial demographic. I want to shift towards housing here a little bit. And for anybody doubting the economic heft that the, the Black community has, Look at the record-breaking success of things like Black Panther, you know, Wakanda Forever, the way that the community can band together and, and put their money behind things and, and you know, spend billions, trillions of dollars. So uh, when it comes to home ownership, you know, is it fair to say more needs to be done to, to support Black home ownership? And I, I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes, but what, <laughs> give, us, give us the why behind that, you know? A lot of people say mortgage lending is already equitable, and, and it has made great strides uh, in terms of redlining and some of these regulations we've seen at a federal level. But uh, obviously, I'm sure you think it has a long way to go. Right, indeed, there is a there is a long way to go. And and to your point, uh, the black dollar is responsible for one trillion dollars per year in um, commercial goods, goods and services. So one trillion dollars is is a lot of money, you know. So you would think that the black home ownership rate would be higher than it is right now, just based on our spending patterns. But based on our spending patterns, blacks typically spend more on luxury goods. Uh, commercial items, beauty services and products in their cars than they do on home ownership, which is why the black home ownership rate is 44% and the white is 74%. The white community prioritizes home ownership in a way that the black community never has. Um, and then there's also some disparities there in, in income, if you will, right? The average black household makes about $46,000 a year on average median income. And the average white household is about $75,000 median income. And so when you have that disparity as well, it's going to be more difficult for the Black community to qualify for home loans just based on the fact that they don't make as much money as whites. And so they're pricing themselves out of the, um, the home loans, excuse me, home ownership just there. Uh, you really need to start focusing on education in Black households. This is what I've dedicated the majority of my career to, talking about the importance of homeownership, talking about the importance of equity and transitioning that equity um, through the generations. I, I don't know if I've said this before on your, on your previous podcast when you and I spoke, but I'm a fifth generation homeowner. Uh, homeownership goes all the way back to my great, great, great grandfather who was born enslaved. He was, he was picking uh, cotton in the fields by the age of nine. And when he passed away in 1902, he owned 50 acres of land and he'd left a home for each one of his eight children. Now, that was a major accomplishment back in 1902. 
But to be fair, it's still a huge accomplishment today in 2023. You had a, if your great grandfather left eight homes to his children and owned 50 acres of land as a black man, that would be celebrated today, right? But the reason home ownership continued through my family line is because each generation made it their priority to own a home. Growing up, my parents were very vocal about the fact that we were going to graduate high school, go to college, buy a house. I mean, that was the marching orders for our family. And they were able to give those marching orders because we grew up with generational wealth. Equity was passed through the generations. And until we get to a point where this is a common conversation that we are having around Black dinner tables, we are not going to make meaningful change in the homeownership numbers because Blacks have to want it for themselves. They have to know it is a reality for themselves and get educated about how to buy a home products and services that are available to assist them into getting into homeownership, transitioning that mind shift from generational renting to generational homeownership. And, you know, the Black female is starting to do it. And the Black demographic, the Black single female is the number one head of household. 52% of women who are Black are the head of their household. And they're also the number one driver of homeownership in the Black community is the Black female. And so we're starting to slowly see the tide changing. But unfortunately, it's going to take quite a bit longer at this rate. In your opinion, what will it take for things to shift from generational renting to generational homeownership? Is it is it that education around the the dinner table? Where where does it uh, where can it improve? How's it get better? I think it's twofold. I think it's definitely education around the dinner table first and foremost. When you hear it from mom and dad, you believe it to be true, right? If you hear it from some random loan officer on the corner that the home ownership is possible for you too, you might not believe it. But I also think it's pivotal that we start talking about this in the school system. Uh, you know, I live in Utah, again, predominantly white state. Uh, but my daughter, she goes to a very nice high school here and they have a whole course. Um, they call it home economics, but it's nothing like the home <laughs> economics that we grew up with, to be honest with you. Okay. The entire course is run inside of an app. And the app looks like your standard banking app. So like your Chase app, your Bank of America app, et cetera. You get credits every day for attending class and everybody has a quote unquote job in class and they have an income. Your income and your job are picked randomly. And you have to use entire course to balance your life through this app. So they teach you about interest rates. You are required to buy a car so you can get to and from work through this app. And then you have to decide for yourself whether or not you want to purchase a home or rent a home. Do you want to purchase a home in this neighborhood? Other than the neighborhood is the classroom desks. Do you want to purchase a home in this neighborhood? Because it costs this much money and this is how much you have to pay in taxes. Or you can purchase a home or rent a home in this side of the classroom where you don't have to pay any taxes, but you have to pay a higher rate than the homeowners in the classroom. It is fascinating. She, of course, picked to rent. And I asked, why did you pick to rent? She said, well, my best friend was sitting with the renters and I wanted to sit next to her. Mm -hmm. And I said, Maya, you completely lost the whole, the whole, the, you know, purpose of this exercise. So we talked about it. We talked about why homeownership is important and why she should have picked the home to purchase and gotten that equity. And you, because you can use the equity in your home to buy toys, to buy gaming consoles, to buy all kinds of stuff. And so I would love to see this program available to all communities throughout the country, specifically underserved communities, so they can understand what money means, what money does, the power of the dollar, and how to utilize it for their best good. 
That's truly incredible. I wish I had a class like that. I'm I'm still waiting in my 30s now to use the Pythagorean theorem that they taught me. <laughs> Kept thinking I was going to have to use it, but turn out oh, turns out I haven't. Turns out uh, it wasn't so important, huh? <laughs> no, that I mean, truly, that class sounds amazing. It's uh, incredible. So there are there are programs that are geared uh, towards increasing Black home ownership or, or helping out people of color and minority communities. Uh, we've heard about credits in the, or excuse me, we've heard about mortgage credits in the non-bank space as an example. Do you see these products as being effective is are you know do the blacks and, and people of color need a combination of incentives what what's the best way to help increase home ownership some some of these products are actually really creative and could be potentially extre- extremely successful uh for members of the black community you know i know at arrive home we have this product called earned equity program where this is where you, we tr- we partner uh, non-traditional consumers, either ITIN borrowers or people with credit challenges with a governmental entity, and they they partner together to purchase a home. Um, so there are a lot of programs and products out there that could potentially be very helpful. The problem is they're not reaching the communities that they want to assist. You know, putting out blog posts or or putting something on LinkedIn or you know, writing articles and Forbes about these programs while they hit people like me and you, and we think that these are great products and programs, we are already homeowners. We're not living in an underserved community, right? The people that we really want to reach out and touch, bring into homeownership so they can stop paying these exorbitant amounts on rent. These are our school teachers. These are people working at Target. These are janitors in schools. They're not on LinkedIn. They're not reading the Wall Street Journal typically. And so we've got to get creative in our messaging to reach out and touch the communities we really want to help in a way that they are going to receive. If I send, a matter of fact, I have sent family members articles about, hey, there's this special purpose credit program in your area, or hey, have you heard about this DPA program that's out there that could help you? And I send them varying articles. You know, it's not going to help if that's the it's not written in a way that they can receive. The information is not presented to them in a way that's easy to absorb. They're not going to intake it. They're going to feel like, oh, this is not for me. I can barely get through this article. I don't even understand what it's saying. There's no way I'm ready for home ownership if I can't even get to this Forbes article. Well, really, that's not true. If you present the information information in a way that is indigenous to the community you're speaking to and you present it in a way that's easily understandable, that's when you really start to turn the tide on home ownership. It's no different than when you first started investing in stocks or when Bitcoin first came around. Nobody knew what a Bitcoin was, right? But after you talk to some friends, read some blog posts, do a little bit of research, have some conversations that aren't so high level, we're talking normal, normal person to person, then it starts making a lot more sense. Home ownership is the same way. I want to close by asking you, how can we better get the word out there that there are options for black home buyers? I mean, even even my friends and, and not necessarily my friends of color, they they feel overwhelmed. Oh, I don't have the down payment for this or, oh, I don't want to pay mortgage insurance. And it's like there are so many options today that can help get you in homes. And there are great incentive programs, whether it's companies helping buy down the rate or whatever it is. How can we get the word out for for black potential homeowners that you know that the dream is achievable? 
So there's two things that I've seen recently that I have felt like have been the most pivotal and transformative, specifically within uh, the Black community. I have seen a plethora of TikToks that are devoted, and I know you're going to laugh at me, but they're devoted to explaining the home buying process. Realtors, loan officers, originators. I've seen a couple from underwriters that are taking time to break it down step by step. You think you need a 700 FICO? No, you don't. This is the lowest FICO that you can have where you can access traditional financing. If you want to go under traditional financing, there are options for you too. And they have all these TikToks that are explaining it. Realtors that are explaining market conditions saying, this is a good neighborhood for you to look in if you are in this income demographic because you have some leveraging power here, right? Using social media uh, to our advantage. Reels on Instagram is another one. I've seen a lot of reels lately because I've been putting in these search cues and now my algorithm is feeding me this information, even though I don't need it but I wanted to see if it was out there in a meaningful way. And I've been sending them to my cousins and my even my oldest daughter, who's 20, to try to get her mind primed in a way that she's going to receive the information because she scrolls TikTok all the time, as do a lot of our millennial and Gen Z generations. Another thing that I've seen uh, recently, a couple of months ago, which I thought was fantastic, a guaranteed rate is a very large mortgage company out there. They have these Telemundo style commercials because they are targeting uh, increasing home ownership in the Latin community, where it's a soap opera-esque commercial, but they're giving really valuable information in this commercial about interest rates and program offerings that are out there. But it's received in a manner that that demographic is used to accepting. You know, that the Latins love Telemundo and the soap opera style uh, commercials and shows. And so they've used that to their advantage to produce a message for their community in a way that it wants to be received. So we've got to start thinking outside of the box and creating mediums and information and advertisements that are going to speak to people in a meaningful way that they can understand. And whether that's doing it through a funny reel on TikTok where you're dancing and singing and pointing to the words, but the words you're pointing to are actually providing some really stellar information, or a Telemundo commercial that's doing the same thing, a Telemundo style commercial that's doing the same thing, people are starting to really get creative about how to get this information out there so they can increase their business. As much as Latins love Telemundo, I might love having you on my podcast more. So <laughs> I, I really want to thank you for making the time to come on. Uh, you're welcome back whenever. I love talking to you. Thank you so much, Ty. Thanks, Robbie. Turning to the economy, there isn't much going on in the secondary markets. Continued hawkish talk this week from Fed members after last week's rate hike has pushed rates upward. The latest came yesterday, with New York Fed President Williams saying the Fed will need to maintain restrictive rates for a few years. The sell-off saw the 10-year Treasury yield reach as high as 3.69%, the highest since early January. For those that enjoy tracking Treasury yields, Treasury sold $35 billion in 10-year notes to spectacular demand. Weekly jobless claims kicked off today's calendar in at 196,000, slightly over expectations, but still low. Continuing claims came in at $1.688 million. Later today brings a treasury auction of $21 billion of 30-year bonds and Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey. We begin Thursday with agency MBS prices better by an eighth to a quarter and the risk for U.S. 10-year treasury note yielding 3.58 after closing yesterday at 3.65% with the yield curve inversion continuing since the two-year is yielding 4.22.
Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Would it be okay to cross an eel and an eagle? Of course not. It would be eel eagle. <laughs> Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, the homeownership platform that unites the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process into one seamless end to end solution that spans engagement, origination, closing, and business intelligence. To learn more about Simple Nexus, an Encino company, visit simplenexus.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, Search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.